Welcome to Life of the School, episode 10. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. On the Life of School podcast, I like to sit down and have conversations with fellow life science teachers from around the country. In this episode, I sit down with Robin Baleri. Uh, Robin is a biology teacher at Carborough High School in Carborough, North Carolina. Throughout her career, Robin has taught a variety of science courses, including AP Biology, Biology, Anatomy and Physiology, Earth Science, Physical Science, and Environmental Science. In addition to teaching, Robin has been an advisor to an NABT bio club and has also coached soccer. Robin has been heavily engaged in professional development for science teachers, including achieving national board certification, presenting at state and national conferences such as NCSTA, NSTA, NABT. She is a teacher ambassador for HHMI Biointeractive, developed a TED-Ed lesson about Henrietta Lacks, and led workshops on teaching and evolution for a Keenan, as a Keenan Fellow. She is also involved in AP Biology Leadership Academy, where she writes professional development curriculum and will lead summer workshops on content and leadership for biology teachers in the Southeast. Robin earned both a Master's in Education in Policy, Planning, and Administration and a Bachelor of Science in Education from Boston University. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. Well, Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great, uh, great to get in touch with you, and I'm glad that you made it through the hurricane safely. I know that. <laughs> yes. I was watching the watching the news this weekend, watching you know the Carolinas and Georgia get get hit pretty heavily, and obviously Florida. And I was thinking about our our planned talk for today. Going, I hope every I hope she's okay. We can always move this back. Yep. <laughs> but, Luckily, the middle of the state is just soggy, but we're otherwise just fine. Yeah, that that's good. And uh, as we were talking about before we started recording, um, you know, I, there's so much, I, so much overlap, I feel like I've seen uh, when I, I saw your name. I, I joined, um, well, I shouldn't say I joined Twitter, but I, I sort of re-engaged with Twitter last year. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I'd been on a few different times. And then last year, I, through, for a variety of reasons, I decided to give it another shot sort of as a, almost using it as a professional learning network, you know, see, sort of seeing how Twitter could be there. And, and your name was one of those names that a lot of the people I started you know, looking at and, and following. And I, I saw you and I was like, Oh, Robin, I remember Robin. <laughs> I know she does good <laughs> stuff. So, uh, it, it was great, to great to be able to, uh, get you on uh, the podcast so we could talk a little bit about you as a teacher. Um, yeah. cause I, I know you've done a million amazing things. So, um, let me throw you, throw the first question right at you and see, um, see how we get started. And my qu- okay. first question I like to get to everybody is how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Um, so really boring answer. I went to college and majored in science education and became a teacher pretty much straight away. Um, you know, a lot of people just are born in knowing that they're, that they want to be a teacher. And, um, and so at a young age, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And then in high school, I had some really influential, really, um, really fantastic science teachers particularly, and that really um, pushed me in that direction. And so I went to BU, like you mentioned, majored in science education, um, and then started teaching about two weeks after I turned 22 years old, and I've been <laughs> doing it ever since. Wow. And so I so know 
I, I know that BU it's been has going on eighteen years. Yeah. yeah, I know BU has a lot of um, a lot of outreach and a lot of education opportunities. So, did you have you know opportunities while you're at BU to to get into the classroom? You know, before it was go time. Um, you know, when you were twenty two or um, yeah, they do. Um, so their intro to education class um, puts you in the in the classroom in a local classroom, uh, basically as a teacher assistant, uh, once a week. Um, in a K-8 class. Mm-hmm. Even if you're going to be a high school teacher, they put you in the K-8 class because mm-hmm. you're only a freshman or sophomore in, high, in college, so mm-hmm. they need some age separation. Um, but straight away, you know, we were we were in the classroom helping out, working with kids, working with teachers. And um, I actually worked at the Museum of Science in Boston for, oh, about seven or eight years mm-hmm. uh, through high school and college and be a little bit beyond. And so um, I was always teaching summer classes or teaching weekend classes to kids, and so I was teaching in an informal, um, in an informal environment before I was a teacher, officially. Oh wow! Yeah, the, and the Museum of Science does have great outreach, so that was probably a very they easy do. transition. If you had already done that for several years throughout high school, and then you have this opportunity to go into K eight classes while you're in college, there must have been a natural uh, flow. I guess. I guess my question for you, when you when I hear that background. Um, you know, why high school science? Because I, I see you as a, a, a high school science teacher. Sort of what made that choice, you know, how did that choice come about? It was really, um, it was really just down to my high school teachers, Mr. Hassett um, and Ms. Eason, who were my biology two and my anatomy and physiology teachers. They were really, you know, I had a knack for breaking things down and explaining the concepts to other kids and and um and they pointed that out to me too, and so they really encouraged me to to go into teaching like they did. Well, yeah, well, that's that's great. I love to hear the the wonderful modeling and and viewing the teachers as you know a potential model. So I guess one of those things you don't. I mean, maybe you think about it every day. It's something I don't think about every day when I'm in the room, um, but I think it's probably something we should be more aware of. <laughs> uh, at least people like yeah, we me. do. We leave a mark on the kids for good or for bad. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. about the mark, but I don't. I don't always necessarily think that I'm modeling the profession that they might go into. I think I, you know, I, I try to model yeah. science and I try to model, you know, being a good person. But I don't necessarily think about that. Oh, there are future science teachers in front of me. Um, for whatever reason, I, that's part not part of my filter. Um, but maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I, as I said, uh, in my last podcast that I was talking to somebody, um, you know, I started doing these over the summer and now, you know, we're in it, we're in the school year. So, you know, as I was, uh, you know, grading a couple makeups tests, uh, right before we got on and, and looking over some papers and looking up some unit planning, um, I now think about, about what we're doing. So I'm curious, what units are you and your students currently working on? Yeah, so we started school the last week of August, and so, you know, we got through September, and that's a big step in the school year. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, establishing all those routines and getting to know the kids and whatnot. Um, and so we, my AP Bio kids finished their evolution unit last week. I finished grading their tests over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And um, so now we're into biochemistry and organic molecules and enzymes and that kind of stuff. And um, my freshman biology class, we're starting to finish up the evolution unit, and they'll have a test next week on that. So I'm excited. I love teaching enzymes. I love doing the messy labs that come mm-hmm. with doing the biochemistry unit. 
Yeah. What what enzyme labs do you do you prefer to do? I, I think I saw something about uh, grinding up some livers. Uh, is that your oh, standard yeah. enzyme lab? <laughs> yeah. Well, so today we were doing a pH and buffer lab, and so I ground up some liver so they could see, uh, so they could test the pH and see the buffering action that liver has compared to, you know, water mm-hmm. and compared to buffer solution. And then next week we'll do Kim Foglia's classic enzyme function lab um, with the dropper bottles mm-hmm. and gradu- inverted graduated cylinders to collect the bubbles. Yeah, I I use the cow livers as well. Um, with uh, I, although we weren't able to get cow livers, we're doing chicken livers uh, this year. Uh, but that's our enzyme lab with our our first year bio course. Um, we just do it more. Um, we quantify it. Actually, I, I don't tell the kids how to quantify it. Um, I give the kids. Uh, the, the liver extract uh, ground up and I give them some hydrogen peroxide and I let them observe it. And then mm-hmm. I walk them through the process and I ask them, all right, what should our class standards be? So it's, it's a really, it's like kind of slow, but it sort of builds up materials and methods. And we talk about, you know, what are the variables we want to keep constant? What are the variables we want to change? And I actually give them choice about, you know, what are different ways that we could, you know, measure the reaction and so we we tend to get a few different answers i have some groups some classes will do like a relative reaction rate you know one through five scale some will measure the height of the bubbles in the test tube some will measure the time that the reaction takes Mm -hmm. place Uh, but i actually i intentionally don't walk in with a plan of what it's going to be and i try to guide them to that uh, reaction that way um but I, I love your idea of showing the buffer idea because that is not something I, I do currently, and I uh, think that would be a pretty cool. Yeah, well, I mean, it's important to talk about pH first. Yeah. Um, and leading into how pH affects enzymes and other and other molecules. Um, but you know, I really like your idea of teaching the enzyme lab that way, and and you know, it gives kids a lot of freedom and really forces them to think critically about the scientific process and all of the controls that you have to have and what are good ways to collect data and what are better ways to collect data. And then when you toss it up on a graph, Mm -hmm. what are the millions of different ways that you could graph that information and really just let them have a conversation with that. And um, I think a lot of teachers are just afraid that their kids won't get any data. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the lab, you know, the class will just be a wash or a waste. Yeah. But I think there's still learning to be to be had there. If it, you know, if kids, if their you know experimental setup doesn't work, then have them back it up and, and figure out why. And you're right; it takes a ton of time. Yeah. Well, um, I like. But that's the really good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's where you do the really deep learning. Yeah, I, I like the. I mean, we do the pH piece, but I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, gosh, that is a piece where I talk about pH, and it is an abstract concept, um, particularly with the freshmen, where they, you know, freshmen sophomores, which are my first year bio mm-hmm. kids, and it's such an ad- abstract concept to them. What is that notion of pH? So. Thank you. I may right. I may steal that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know, go for it. I know, I'll send you, the, I, I'll send you the, the word doc. Yeah, I now need I now need to think. I don't know if I'll do it as a formal. La- well, I definitely want to see the doc. I'm looking at my upcoming unit schedule in front of me, and I'm like, hmm, I got to figure out a yeah, way. Where to, are you gonna, where yeah, are you gonna squeeze it? We're in? gonna squeeze it in. But I think I I think I can in my mind. I have a way of of at least uh, I could see a challenge problem. 20 minutes of class. I, I can see a way that I'm going to, I could squeeze that oh, in sure. one way or the other. You could take a couple of minutes and just give a couple of different kids a beaker with mm-hmm. dropper bottles of, Absolutely. of acids. Yeah. Yeah. And the pH sure. paper. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing I love about the way that I've sort of moved and it's definitely been a, a I've evolved into this this type of enzyme lab with the kids is I like to as soon as I do the conversation, there's always like one or two kids who I do it as a class vote. I say uh, the, all the groups are going to collect data the same way. And there's like one or two kids who are like really mad because they're like, oh, that's dumb. We should do it as timing or, you know, whatever. <laughs> they're like the one of kids. And I go and I point those kids out and I go. Is, you know, write down that you want to do this because you already have your error analysis written. You know, even if this, mm-hmm. la- if this lab doesn't work, you could say, you know, the problem with this lab was the way we chose to collect our data and that we should redo exactly. this lab and we should do it with, you know, we need a different variable. You know, we need to have a different way to, to, to quantify this. And the way we went to quantify failed, or even if it fails in one location and one of the ones actually, the way they almost always pick to measure the height of the bubbles. And the problem is, is when you get reactions that go to the top of the test tube and they foam out, that's an imperfect system. Uh, so right. I, I, I like to put that in, like, how could you make this lab better? How could you do it? And that's one of the things I like about that setup. But I, I make sure to make the point with that kid for all the kids to say, so that's part of it. You ask the questions, how could I refine this? How could I get better information? How could I learn more about this phenomenon? And, um, right. and that question is really kind of a fun way of, uh, of putting it out there. So, yeah, it's, it's great. I also, uh, the other enzyme lab we do is we, uh, we started doing um, uh, the yeast spheres lab with catalase. And that's our AP lab where we basically make oh, sure. just like the algae balls, but we make them with yeast and you drop yep. them, you drop them in. Um, that's what my AP kids are actually working on. They did their baseline lab and they just love that lab. They like making the little yeast spheres. They like dropping them in. They watch them, <laughs> float them up. Yeah, I've used the, I used the yeast spheres last year for um, cell respiration. Yeah, yeah. I, and they I, were a lot of fun. Um, and for me, the reason I love that, I mean, I love that lab for a lot of reasons, but it's also, I have the kids, um, you know, we front load all that statistic stuff up front and then they get this statistic set where they've got 15 or 20 or 25 spheres that they've dropped in. And it's perfect. Mm-hmm. To, it's perfect to do standard deviation and standard error. Yes. It's a perfect nice. data set and you get really nice things. And then I put all the groups up and I have them put their error bars on. And it's just like this really clean way to teach standard deviation, standard error with a really good data set. Um, so yep. it's a, it's a really, it fits really nicely into that introductory, introductory piece. Plus it's a little different cause they've done liver extract with catalase. So they already sort of know the basic reaction. So this is a sort of a different way of uh, approaching catalase, um, in that different way. So, yeah. So, yeah, yeah let me, uh, so let me move on to uh, my next question. So I, I mentioned in the introductory introduction, all of your, um, your, your many professional development uh, things that you, yeah. you've been involved with, uh, some of which I'm, I'm like honestly tremendously jealous of uh, as, I, as I was going through and looking at them. I was like, oh, you know, because you've done work with HHMI and everybody I know who does uh, HHMI. I was talking to David Kanufke a few weeks ago and, you know, he was, you know, singing the praises of HHMI. And, you know, yep. I, and I've, I've been to NSTA and I've been to NABT and their presentations are amazing. Um, and I also saw your, your TED-Ed on Henrietta Lacks. Um, and so I've seen all of these professional development pieces that you've done. And I'm really curious, how, how does that work impact the teaching and learning in your classroom? Like, how does going and doing those various things sort of shape the work that you do on a day-to-day basis? Um, right. So I'll give you the, the easier answer is about the TED-Ed video. Um, so the Henrietta Lacks mm-hmm. animation that I, that I helped create last fall. And uh, I think it came out last February. And that one was actually out of a need I had in my classroom. Um, you know, I use the TED-Ed cartoons that they have up there mm-hmm. uh, all the time. I use videos like the wacky history of the cell theory and 
Um, there's a really good one about feedback loops and ecosystems. And I use these things all the time in my notes, and I put them up in my, my Google Classroom board for my kids to watch. Um, and I teach The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, the book, um, with my AP students. I got a small grant mm-hmm. from our public school foundation a few years ago, so I got a bunch of books, and we read the book, um, you know, during usually during the winter time, at some point during second or third quarter. And so I was looking for some resources on TED Ed about Gila or Henrietta Lacks in general, and they didn't have anything up there. Mm. Um, and so there's a button on their website for teachers. Hey, if you have an idea, throw it at us. And so I did. Yeah. And over the, you know, during the summer, so last summer, they called me and said, we're interested in developing your idea. And then we just went back and forth. I, I wrote a little script. We went back and forth with edits, and then I worked with the animator to um, to put the pictures to words, essentially, and make sure that everything was historically correct and scientifically correct and, and all that business. And, um, and it was a great experience. It was really one that I put on myself because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was looking for resources for my students. And um, what really the product of it um, was really more than I, more than I had in my head. So it worked out great. Um, and it was really nice to work with uh, an outside group. You know, I'd never worked with a professional animator. I'd gone back and forth um, about my ideas with somebody like that. And um, it was really a good experience. I, I enjoyed that. That's neat. Um, yeah. The HHMI business, that's like... <laughs> I can sing their praises just as much as David David did, probably. Um, I kind of fell into them as a result of, um, so I was a Keenan Fellow a few mm-hmm. years ago. A, a Keenan Fellowship is a fellowship available to teachers in North Carolina, um, usually math and science teachers, but, but other sometimes other teachers from um, other disciplines or the elementary school. And, uh, and we do an internship, usually with a local business or a hospital that has some sort of science. Um, science slant to it, or it might be a research company, or it might be a, a professor at NC State or UNC or something to work on a project with them. And I interned with um, Nescent, which is a, which was, they lost its funding last year, so it doesn't exist now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're an evolution research group um, based in Durham, near where I lived. And so I worked with their education outreach person, and we developed um, a series, or we've developed a teacher workshop teaching, um, helping teachers teach evolution better because there's a need for that mm-hmm. in the Southeast, especially especially in rural areas. We need to strengthen evolution education, and, and that's really a passion of mine lately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the HHMI folks happened to come be in town while I was doing the workshop one year. And, um, and then from there, you know, there was... A few other connections. We knew the similar people from similar places. Um, but mm. from there, they asked if I would, you know, do other presentations for them at NSPA or, you know, attend this workshop or attend that workshop. And so, you know, I just kept saying yes and finding <laughs> a way to, to, to go. Yeah. So on Wednesday, for example, I'm going to go up to HHMI and attend their holiday lectures, which oh, is... Wow. A tremendous experience. I went a couple of years ago, and I'm so excited to go again and work with, um, meet the scientists, listen to their lectures, and then work with other great teachers to develop 
curriculum and lessons and resources to go along with those lectures. Yeah. I mean, HHMI is an yeah. amazing organization. And, um, yeah, it's, it's funny because, um, when I was in college, uh, when I was a, a senior in college, um, I actually got, uh, some Howard Hughes grant money, uh, not a lot, mm-hmm. but a couple hundred bucks, uh, to do, sure. to do research. Um, and it literally was one of those things that allowed me, you know, to bridge the gap and cut back my hours that I was working in my other part-time college job to spend hours working in lab. Um, you know, it was a couple hundred dollars a semester and, you know, looking at it, it's, it's small change for a big type organization like that, but it allowed me to pursue science as a science student in college. And all I had to do at the end was, you know, present with that group and it was a small bit of money. And I was just like, I don't know who, you know, I don't know what this organization is back then. You know, this is, you know, early (laughs) nineties. And now it turns about, you know, the last 10 years as I've been teaching the amazing resources they, they come out with. Um, you know, I just was pulling out my, my notebook earlier today and there are literally, um, three different HHMI, you know, uh, (laughs) sheets in, in my notebook right now. Uh, one, which is the rock pocket mice that I'm, I'm working with my alternative program on. Um, you know, and it's like, it's just one of those things where I've got three different papers, some stuff that I'm planning down the road and some stuff that I'm working on right now. And, um, just amazing resources that they have. And, uh, yeah, I can, I can see why, uh, having worked with other organizations that are good and do quality stuff, how they'd say, do you want to do this? You'd go, sure, I'll do that too. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. I will. Yes, I will do that. When and where should I be? Yeah. And, um, and it's great because they, they treat the teachers with respect, um, as professionals while you're there. They really show appreciation for our time, mm-hmm. um, that we spend away from our classes. Cause as a teacher, you know, it's hard to leave some plans and to leave your kids for, you know, two or three or four days while you go to a workshop. Um, but they, I mean, they make it worth your while and, and then to just give all of their resources and make them available for free for anybody. Um, I think, I mean, it's just good for the field, um, that they do that. Oh, you're making me feel bad that I'm not yeah. going to NABT again this year. So, <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, it should be a good time. Uh, it was like so geared up for it because I was like, oh, I'd love to go to Denver, and I was all geared up to go. But um, we have, I, we literally have a wedding to go to on Saturday evening. Uh, my oh, wife right. and I have to go to one, and I, if the the schedule was the same as last year, I probably would have gone and then like flown home like Saturday morning. But I can't justify the can't justify flying out to go to like. Friday's workshops <laughs> just right. and come exactly. back. I was like, believe, believe me, I, I turned it over in my head about as many times as I could to try to figure out a way to justify flying out to Denver to stay in the hotel for a night. Uh, but uh, maybe next year. And also, you know, maybe if I don't do that, maybe I do NSTA in Los Angeles instead or, you know, yeah. I, I pick something yeah, else I'll to be do. There too. Yeah, I, I find it's hard. I, I like to go to, I love going to the conferences, but I find it's, it's hard for me to to go to to both of those in a year, um, so I did NABT last year. I'll do probably NSTA this year. That then, um, so there's it's. I find it hard to justify for me, uh, you know, flying out and going to the various things. Um, oh no, I totally get that. I um my state conference mm-hmm. NCSTA is next week, but I, I'm not going, and I almost always go. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sandwiched in between holiday lectures and NABT, and I, I have to. I have to go to school and teach. And so, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it is a give and take, and then NSTA happens during my spring break, so I don't have uh, too much guilt. Yeah, that's... Much school guilt about, about going to that one. So, I, you know, my principal, when I told her the summer that I was going to need something like nine days off over the course of the first three months of school, mm-hmm. and she kind of, she hesitated. I said, you know, but all you have to do is pay for the subs, and, and you don't have to pay for registration or travel or anything. And so mm-hmm. she signed off on it, and I, I don't anticipate missing any school after this. Yeah. Um, Nine Nine is sort of my magic number. I like to use with people because that, that represents 5% of the year. And I figure you you can miss, you know, like that's the sort of magic that to me, that's sort of the sweet spot that if, if you're under that five, if you're under nine days a year that you miss um, total, like it's okay. You know, you you can adjust that. (laughs) But once you get, once you break that nine days off in a year, it, it, and, and that's where I, and this is sort of my own personal calculus when I think about workshops and, and time away and yeah. that sort of thing. When I'm, you know, as you sort of said, you like, you like to say yes to things. Um, that's sort of my, my number. And I, I generally don't go anywhere near that, but there's been a couple of years where, you know, thing, you get opportunities. People ask you to, to go to a workshop or to come visit a place or to, you know, to go see this or to go see that. And, you know, especially if you've got one of those reoccurring workshops that you sometimes you get involved right. with where, you know, yep. it's, it's like once a month for three or four months. Well, that, you know, next thing you know, you've missed five days of school for the year. Yeah. And then <laughs> you go to line up NSTA and it's like, all right, so now I'm at eight days and now there's another opportunity to go on a workshop. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of my, when I, when I start to think about whether or not I have to say no, that's usually the question I ask myself. That's your cutoff. Yeah. yeah so mm-hmm. I just, I just squeak in and I should yeah. be good for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky I do. I have a co-teacher for my, uh, my freshman biology class. That's great. Um, it's a collaborative class with a special ed teacher. And so he'll, he'll be taking on the reins for the few days that I'm out. And so they won't get behind. Um, my, my AP kids will just have to keep up with their assignments online Yeah. and, uh, I'll keep them honest some way or another. Yeah, that sounds that keep sounds them wor- great. Keep them working, no yeah. matter, even if I'm not there. Well, that, that is the other joy that now, you know, as I like to tell my students, we now live in the future. So, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we're all connected, and I don't have, if I'm not physically there, it's not like they can't communicate, you know, when... When, you know, when I was in high school or you were in high school and, you know, you weren't there, like, that was it. Like, you were not in the yeah. building. Your teacher was not in the building. You it know, was you, like it never even happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, we were watching, my wife and I were watching Stranger Things. I don't know if you ever caught on to Stranger Things this summer. No, I haven't watched it yet. Okay. So there's this moment in Stranger Things where these, like, middle school boys call their science teacher at home. And she turned to me at that moment and she said, oh, my God, if there was no internet, our phone would ring all the time. Yeah, that's probably true. And you know, with the hurricane this past weekend, I asked my students this morning, you know, was everybody okay during the storm and whatnot? And a couple of kids lost their power, but a bunch of kids were like, oh my God, we lost our wireless and I didn't know what to do with my phone. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine. It was like kids. the end of the world for them. They couldn't yeah. get on the internet. Yeah. They're so, they're so heavily connected. Yep. So... All right. Well, I think building off of sort of what we're talking about with all of these opportunities, one of the things I know about all of the professional development opportunities is uh, you start to meet, you know, teachers around the country and you start to sort of engage and you're, you know, your community of educators isn't just the people in your building. 
Um, but, and I, I started the story earlier saying that, you know, I, I started re-engaging with sort of some social media stuff last year. Um, and I have a long history of being involved with an online mentoring network, um, which I know you worked with for a few years, EMSS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I've always sort of had my community, um, online, but it's been a very narrow community. And it, for me, I've worked in a lot of roles in that and it takes up a lot of my hours, um, during the week was working with the MSS. So I never really engaged in Twitter or Facebook with other teachers. Um, but I started to last year and, you know, I, I, I saw you on there and I, I've seen a lot of other people, but I'm curious is looking back, you know, how you built sort of this professional, le- uh, you know, professional learning network that you've done online, sort of how did that come about? I'm, I'm curious where, what led you to using the, you know, the, the Facebook group and the Twitter group sort of as a professional learning community? Um, so the Twitter, so I got on Twitter when I was a Keenan fellow, I guess mm-hmm. that was like four years ago, um, basically because I got bullied lovingly <laughs> by other Keenan fellows that they were on it and I should get on it so I could at least talk about my Keenan fellow project and the stuff I was doing. Um, and so I kind of got on there reluctantly. Um, but then as I got involved, like you said, as I got involved in other groups, the, um, the AT Biology Leadership Academy, mm-hmm. um, primarily, I was in the second cohort of that, and um, and I met just the most amazing teachers, um, including David Konuski. He was in mm-hmm. cohort two with me. And, um, you know, I'm the only AP Biology teacher in my school, and honestly, the other AP Biology teachers in my district are kind of, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. And we don't, our paths don't really cross during the school year for a lot of reasons. And so this was really me connecting with my tribe mm-hmm. and, you know, building friendships, but also just having people to chat with and, you know, talk shop with about things that work for our kids and things that don't work and just our trials and tribulations and, and our successes. And it was really a really powerful community and it was really, um, it was really important for me at that point in my career. It was something that I needed, uh, I needed to have because I, I wasn't, I didn't get that from my school because it's, a, I mean, I work at a great school, but it's a small school. And you, if you're the only one who teaches a certain course and it's, it's a little bit isolating. Yeah. And, um, and so I got on Twitter, um, and the Facebook groups really to maintain those relationships and to branch off from there, you know, because there's the um, AP Biology Leadership Academy, and then people from our, our cohort would connect with people from cohorts one, and then eventually cohort three, and then all of a sudden, we're all on Twitter, and we're all on the <laughs> Facebook groups, and, you know, when we see each other once or twice a year at the conferences, it's amazing, Yeah. Um, but just having that kind of, whether it's weekly or monthly, or in a couple of cases, daily contact, <laughs> um, it really kind of energizes you and it just, you know, you don't feel so alone and you really feel like you're in a community of educators. And, and for me, that's been really important, um, to help me really hone my, hone my craft. Even, even though I've been in this game for a long time, um, there's still always something to learn and there's, there's always somebody out there that's doing something better than you. (laughs) And so, you know, um, be, becoming complacent is a really dangerous thing. Um, I used to say that when I coached soccer, too. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd get on a winning streak, and as soon as you become complacent, you're you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, and so 
you don't want to be that teacher that just goes back to the binder from last year and just rehashes the same old thing. You want to keep things new and fresh um, for yourself so you stay um, enthusiastic and, and everything, but also for your kids so that they know that you are really working your pants off for them yeah. and they'll in turn work harder for you. Well, it's it's really interesting to hear you, you say that because I, I feel like I... I, I'm just, you know, we're not in the same room, but I'm, I'm sitting here nodding. Like you said, you're like, yeah. <laughs> you're like isolating. And I, I, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, th- I am not the only AP biology teacher in my building. I, I teach with uh, a phenomenal uh, co-teacher and we split up, uh, you know, we split the sections and we have three AP biology classes in our school. Um, we've had up to four. So this year it's two and uh, I teach two and he teaches one. Um, usually it's Mm -hmm. two and two. Um, and so we have this really great rapport and it's a really nice collaboration that's there. Um, and so I have had this wonderful opportunity, um, in there, but we also both have connections outside. And so we get these ideas from outside and bring it in. And so it's so much more of a robust, uh, curriculum. But I think back to a few years ago, um, there was a time when, when we, when high stakes testing came to Massachusetts, um, and I went out and I really worked on making sure our, our lowest level classes were going to make meet that bar. We're going to get over that, whatever that state bar was. And it was a very much a black box at the time. So I was on state committees. I think I was still there when they started rolling that out. Yeah. Well, the this is, so when they, they I mean, you were probably there in the first rollout back in the, the really early Second. rollout. Um, but they, I think in O. Oh, four, they made the, the official announcement about when MCAS was mm-hmm. going to start. And, um, and, right. and then they put out some pilots and then I was on the standard setting committee for like what was going to be the lines for failing versus needs improvement and proficient versus advanced. And so I invested a lot of my time and energy and I met, you know, very similarly great teachers in there, but it was a little ahead of this networking time. You know, like we went to these meetings and we had these conversations and we looked at the work and we sort of made these decisions and I went back to my room and at the time I was the only person teaching that lowest level of biology and mm-hmm. I, could, I could tell you for years I said the same things I was like oh my god there's so many things I need to change about what I'm doing but I'm the oh, I had no sounding board um, so right. I knew the stuff that I did last year that worked and I knew the stuff that I did last year that I was unsatisfied with so I would like tinker around with the things that I was unsatisfied on but it took me I like I felt like I was moving extremely slowly at improving my teaching and I couldn't I, I needed another I needed another set of eyes there um, and fortunately I only did that for three or four years um, but I felt very isolated um, because it was before really you know the time where there would have been Facebook groups to have or Twitter groups to have um, on those right. levels and um, I, I very much hear what you're saying and now I imagine if I was teaching AP and with all the changes that AP have, has gone over in the last few years um, having that community has been I, I imagine has been crucial um, to feel yeah, like it's awesome. And yeah. it's, I mean, really it's, I wasn't about to leave the profession, but it really has energized me to get through basically the second half of my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that I'm over the hump, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. It's not second, but you know, you're the second person now. I, I, cause I said second half of my career, uh, recently to somebody and they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, it's the second half, you know, I'm in year 21. Yep. I'm in year 21. So, you know, I'm not doing this for another 21, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, my little one is in kindergarten. And so I've got 12 more years. will give me 30 years, and that would get her to graduation. Mm. So we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, and and for me, you know, and I, my my mine are a little bit older. So my my youngest is in uh, is in fourth grade now, um, and my oldest will be taller than me in a couple of weeks at the way he's going, because um, <laughs> he's in he's in middle school. Uh, it's I've I've a, a few more days. I got I've got a long time before I'm not the heaviest person in my family, uh, but I'm yeah. I'm not going to be the tallest. <laughs> Probably definitely when 2017 rolls around, I will not be the tallest person in my household. But uh, so, yeah, same wow. deal. When when they're when they're out of school, you know, when they're out of high school and. Uh, I think it's for me, it's when my youngest is out of college is pretty much when it's going to line up for me where it literally is going to be my choice. You know, um, I will technically be at retirement age at that point. Um, and that yeah. just, it just doesn't seem like it's that far away. Uh, you know, it, it really, it's, I know. Cause I can think of my first, I can still imagine my first kids when I was teaching mm-hmm. in Beverly math. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those kids are all in their thirties now and I'm sure are married and have kids and, and, and whatnot, but <laughs> You know, that was 18 years ago. Yeah. And um, and it seems like it was last week in a lot of ways. I mean, <laughs> tons of things have changed in terms of who I am and, and you know, how we teach kids. Oh, yeah. Um, but who's to say that, you know, 12, 13 years from now won't go by just as quickly in the end. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm starting my 17th good, year. But, yeah. I mean, it doesn't drag for us, and that's, that says something about that we picked the, uh, the right career. Oh yeah. It's, you know, it's flying by. It's flying. I can't even believe, you know, we're, we're recording this now in early October and this will come out in November, but it, like it, it's actually kind of hard to believe. Like we're already been, you know, what are we six weeks into the school year, seven weeks? It's like, we're already six yep. weeks in the school year. Like, how's that, how's that possible? Like, you know, I know it's wild. I'm still trying to finish up last school year in my head. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can understand that. Well, there's stuff that's going to come around at the end of the year. I'll, I know I'll have that feeling like, I thought I fixed this. I thought I fixed this at the end of last year. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, so now that sort of does lead us into the future, we already started talking about the future. So, uh, without going to like where we're going to retire, um, let's talk a little bit more immediately about the future. Uh, what are you like looking forward to in the next couple of years in your classroom? What are, what are sort of the exciting, you know, prospects as you look to, you know, things that you're incorporating and things that you're changing? What are you looking for in those next four few years? Um, I'm looking forward to, you know, making, continuing to move my classroom towards a more student-centered environment where I give them a lot more choice, where more and more of my labs, majority of my labs are, you know, student-driven, like you described your enzyme lab. Um, That should really be um, the approach that we take Mm -hmm. when when we teach most of our concepts, especially at the upper level when you've got, you know, more mature kids that have some background information to to bring to the table. Um, and I'd really like to, to work more deeply with my district, um, training and working with other biology teachers and other science teachers in general, um, with a lot of the pedagogy and a lot of the practices that I've learned from the Leadership Academy and from HHMI and other groups. And, um, and I'll be leading a, a workshop this summer in Florida for teachers in the southeast-ish re- uh, region um, is that, is that the one that will go through a lot of, yeah, is that, in, that? is that in the end of June? It is the end of June. It, it, is that um, something so that, with some awesome teachers. <laughs> did, did may, I, is, may I, I might've heard of that from Chi Klein. Is that yes. possible? Yeah, I'm doing that with Chi. Okay. Yep. 
That is correct. So how how restrictive in that whole southeast thing are you going to be? <laughs> um, I don't know. You I won't be too restrictive. You probably yeah. have to ask Jackie about that. All right. Well, I may I may be sending some pestering emails later in the year because she mentioned something about hey, that a little while ago. I would love it because I think that's right after the school year ends. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's going to be a great time. And I would uh, really love to do um, a similar workshop and have it in North Carolina and reach mm-hmm. out to a lot of our really underserved districts. Um, and give them the, the really high quality professional development that that we all deserve and and want because all teachers really want to do the best for their kids. Yeah, yeah. It's it yeah. it is funny. Like you know, we just mentioned you you talk about you know this professional development and wanting to bring it back, um, but there does seem to be a little inertia in you know opening up professional development in different places, um, and I'm not really sure why that is. Um, but when mm-hmm. I, when I go to professional development, it, you know, as I, as I said, as you sit in North Carolina and I'm sitting in Massachusetts and you're describing a workshop in Florida at the end of the year, and I already know the teach, I already know a teacher involved, uh, because right. it's, you know, the, the teachers who go to these workshops, it does seem to be a, a, a small world, um, you know, that, that these, these different teachers are going to. And I, I wonder how it is that we can make these resources more open to, to other districts and to other teachers and how we can start to break down those barriers a little bit. Yeah, I would love to, to figure that out. You know, North Carolina is a really bimodal type of state. You know, there's mm-hmm. kind of the haves and have nots where you have the, the concentrated centers of, of the population where you've got Charlotte and you have Chapel Hill and Durham where I am and mm-hmm. Wake County where Raleigh is and Greensboro and Wilmington and Asheville a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that's only 10 out of 100 counties in the state. And the other 90 counties are incredibly rural, mm. um, underserved, and, serve, and you know have a high um, proportion of economically disadvantaged kids. And we need to find ways to, to get to those folks and give them opportunities that they're not paying out of pocket to go somewhere. And we can you know, pay for them to go to good professional development or find a way to bring it to the, to their district. Otherwise, we're just going to perpetuate. I mean, I love seeing the same people at conferences, but you do kind of wish that other people had the same opportunities. And how can we build those opportunities for them? Yeah, I, I also wonder if, you know, there's there's also needs to be a little front-loading um, in terms of teaching about professional development and teaching about creating your network earlier on for teachers. Because I feel like the way I learned about professional development and professional development networks came after I was in the classroom. Like I went and I was very focused on getting in the room and being a teacher. But I didn't think about that professional network until I was in the classroom and I felt like, yeah, I got this down. I know my thing. How do I learn, you know, more and I was in, you know, one of the have districts and I did have you know, people around me who were doing those things, who were going to workshops, who were seeing that opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Massachusetts is very different in terms, you know, in comparison, we're a tiny state. Um, 
you know, you can't, you, you, you can't turn around without running into a college or university, um, of, yeah. of some size, like, and in some That's cases true. it's, you know, I, I joke, I, I run all the time and, you know, on, in the middle of the week I go and make my runs. I drop my son off at karate and I go for a run and on my run, my typical midweek run, I run by Assumption College, then Worcester State, then WPI. Like I run past three colleges. Well, like, yeah, mid-week. I mean, you could take the city bus from my school to the camp to UNC Chapel Hill's campus, main yeah. campus, and you know my kids go to their library. Yeah, sooner than they go to our city public library. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess yeah. it's also just a smaller state. That's not to say there aren't have and have nots in Massachusetts. I just think that the population centers are a little bit smaller. Um, oh, absolutely. And so we, we have that issue. But I, I do know that you do get, you talk to teachers who, you know, they start to become a little aware of those networks after they've been in the classroom a little bit more. And, um, mm-hmm. and how do we help people, you know, not overwhelm them early on, but let them know that those networks are there and somehow keep them connected to those networks so that when they start to get their head above water, you know, that year three, <laughs> you know, when, they, when, yeah. they've, when they've learned how, you know, that they're not worried that the classroom's going to burst into flames at any moment, but that they're, they're sort of feel like they're a competent adult standing in front of the room, they're, they know how to push themselves and to get that support they need to grow professionally. Um, right. And, and I think that's going to be... Yeah, I think it's important. My... Um my first year in North Carolina um, was my third year teaching overall, so I was still pretty fresh, mm-hmm. and I was assigned a, a mentor teacher, as I was supposed to be, according to my licensure stuff, mm-hmm. and um, and he took the step of signing me up for my state association, <laughs> um, yeah. which was only like 10 or, 10 or 15 bucks, but I have maintained that membership, and that was a very important first step, and it was just a little step, but it was like, we have a state association. Yeah. There are people you can talk to with questions. There are small grants that you can apply for. You can ask to go to the conference every year and this and that. And um, that was probably the most uh, important impact that that teacher, he was a great guy and a great teacher, but that was the most important thing that he did for me as a colleague was say, hey, you're in the association now. Yeah. Maintain this membership and, and be a part of it. Um, and you're right. We That needs to be part of becoming a teacher yeah, is, you know, joining an association, whether it's your state association or NABP or what have you. Um, and just put yourself out there and get on the electronic communities, whether it's Facebook or Twitter and just get your name out there. And eventually some opportunities are bound to come your way. Um, but we need to get, we need to get the word out. I think. Yeah. Um, even still in this age of technology. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's good when we have the, the, the people who are, you know, the mid-career professionals, you know, having this conversation, I think, is a, is a good step. Um, we can keep pushing this out. I, I think about this a lot. So uh, yeah. it's going to uh, definitely I know the president of my state association, so I definitely can bug him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll be doing that the next time I talk to him. So. All right. So yeah. uh, we've talked a lot about teaching. When you are not teaching, what is Robin doing? Um, so I have two little girls, mm-hmm. a kindergartner and a second grader, and they're awesome. So mm-hmm. I hang out with them a lot and, you know, go take them to swimming lessons and soccer lessons and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we hang out with our husband or my husband, mm-hmm. their dad as well. Um, I play some soccer. I watch a lot of soccer on TV. Um, I used to be <laughs> the soccer coach in my high school and, um, 
but I gave that up for a little while so I could spend some more time at home. And um, I do some CrossFit, and I do some running, and uh, I do some sewing, which sounds kind of lame, but is actually <laughs> a really great way to relax and a great way to pass the time at swim lessons when you're waiting for your kids to get out of the pool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I do stuff like that, and, you know, I probably spend way too much time on the computer looking for stuff to do at school with my kids, but I do try to uh, limit how much schoolwork I take home and really make family time some good stuff. Yeah, that's a constant battle, constant battle. I, I do have the... Constant battle. Yeah. I, I have I have thrown a couple of barbs at you, because you always talk about the wrong team in red from England, but it's all right. I do. Yeah. I do. <laughs> well, you know, at least at least we can both agree that we hate Chelsea and yeah, okay. United, so <laughs> yeah. that's all good. We yeah. can we can find some common ground. We there. can very definitely find some <laughs> common ground there. Um, yeah, I, I am a uh, I am a longtime Liverpool supporter. Uh, that's my uh, that's my that that's you know early nineties. Michael Owen. Oh, sure. uh, Michael and Owen. And hey, I like some Dan- Daniel Sturridge. I oh yeah. Nothing wrong. yeah. You know, I like him. Yeah. And uh, and Jurgen Klopp, he'll bring some. Uh, it'll definitely be exciting there. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 and good to see. Side for a while. It's good to see him play, but it's it is funny because you are one of the few people on Twitter. I mean, now on Twitter, pretty much all I follow is teachers or scientists. But you are regularly yeah, posting. <laughs> you are going to be the person posting the 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 Arsenal uh, every you know every time every time you're posting it. I don't post Liverpool stuff very often, but. Uh, you know, I, I, well, you can tell what I'm. You can tell it's it's posted on a Saturday or yeah. Sunday, and then during the school week, it's all school stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I used so. to I used to coach soccer as well for for many many years, um, but uh, for a variety of reasons, I'm I'm out of it now, except for the fact that I coach U10 for my for my youngest. Um, so that's oh my, yeah, that's, that's my, fun. That's my busy. That's my busy time. But it's compared to and coaching high school. Stressful. Yeah, compared to coaching high school girls, it's a. Uh, it's a lot less stressful to, to coach the U10s in town. Oh, yeah. So, and a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and I still like to run around with them, and they, they always say, it's unfair. Why are you on that team? I was like, so i got to play, too. So, um, <laughs> But they don't take it easy on yeah, me. Yeah, I always play with the kids. I yeah. always play with the kids, little yeah. kids that's when I'm coaching them. Yeah. Those fourth-grade boys are starting to get a little uh, frisky. I think at the next level, they're going to start taking me out. So, <laughs> next yeah, year. Yeah, you'll need to uh... – You'll need to put your shin guards on. Yeah, I think at U12, I'm going to have to put shin guards on because there's been a couple of clips this year where I've kind of wished they were on. So They really start to get stronger when they hit 12. Yeah, yeah. Well, and plus they go down. My knees are not great to begin with, so uh, (laughs) they're all at knee level at this point. So. Yep. All right, so before we get to picks of the week, uh, do you have any questions for me? No, not right now. I'm really excited and and humbled that you – that you messaged me on Twitter to yeah. see if I would appear in your podcast. So yeah. I'm really excited for this opportunity. Thanks. Oh, I'm, I'm, as I said, I was psyched that you were, you were willing to go. I, I've, I put you on my list. I, I, I've often said when I sat down and had this idea and I got to the idea that I would interview teachers, um, I banged out this laundry list of, you know, teachers all over the country, people I, I know from various places and, and, um, you know, I'm now starting to get to the point where I went with the real safe people in my first few, um, you know, people who yeah. I've actually had conversations with face to face, um, before and, you know, now I'm starting to venture out. So you're one of my early people who, you know, I, I know of you and I, I, I have a lot of respect for, you know, what you do out there because, you know, as I see, I've seen you as a professional in, in, in a couple of different locations. So I, I'm, I'm very happy that you decided to, uh, that this would be a fun thing to do. So, you know, yeah, thanks. and more importantly, I'm happy you were 
able to do it after the hurricane. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> so, uh, so picks of the week. So, um, what is an interesting resource that's come across uh, come across your uh, various networks in the last you know week or so? So I went back to my Twitter list or my Twitter to see what I had liked recently because I can't, you know, ever keep anything straight. So everything is just list upon list upon list these days. Um, and I found an article that I read the other day about from the New York Times about update the Nobel Prize because mm-hmm. um, you know the Nobel Prize and your I think your thing is on the Nobel Prize. So yeah. the Nobel Prizes came out last week and then today for uh, economics. Mm-hmm. And so the article was just about how awarding the Nobel Prize in those very specific sciences doesn't really do credit to um, how science works these days, Mm -hmm. where science is more interdisciplinary. Um, We don't even consider ecologists or evolutionary scientists or geologists Mm -hmm. in the decisions um, and it, you know, it just got me to thinking and, you know, how we teach science and science careers to our kids, um, of like, this is what scientists look like mm-hmm. and this is what scientists do. And a lot of the press, you know, this time of year, especially is about the, who's winning the Nobel prize and they're doing work in fields that don't really exist in that form. Um, you know, because they might be getting awards for work that they did years ago. Um, and it's really the application of their work or how their work has been um, applied in different fields that's really um, why their work was so valuable um, in the long run. And the Nobel Prize doesn't really recognize that, per se. And maybe we should reconsider the categories for the Nobel Prize. Yeah, there there was a great talk. It just got on, me to thinking. Yeah. It was a good one. I I read that article as well. There was also a great talk on last week's Science Friday, um, where they were briefly talking about you know the Nobel Prize and and the idea with with Nobel of the original idea of the award was it was supposed to be things that he was interested in, things that mattered in his lifetime, and also was mm-hmm. supposed to award great discoveries that happened within the previous year. Um, and as we right. know, like that's you know if you if any of the awards, if, if something happens and somebody gets an award within like eight years, everyone's like, oh my goodness, this was like a really fast awarding of the Nobel Prize. You know, if it takes, if it doesn't right. take 20, 30 exactly. years uh, since the, the original work. And as you said, it's usually more um, the implication. And then the, the larger piece to me, that equity piece um, that you get, you know, um, how many, how many women have been awarded the Nobel prize? Um, how right. many people get excluded because of the rules that it has to be, you know, three people, nobody posthumously. Um, right. You know, it, it, the Rosalind Franklin. And is there, is there yeah. a slant or a favoritism towards American or UK yeah. folks? Yeah. Um, which as Americans, we shouldn't really complain about, but are we really being fair and in, in considering, um, scientists from other countries? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, the Rosalind Franklin example, I, you know, you can very easily talk to your students and you talk to them about discovery DNA and you talk about all the people who contributed. And then, you know, every once in a while I have somebody who astutely says, you know, well, did Rosalind Franklin get on that Nobel Prize? And I go, no, because she had passed away. And then I ask them, yeah. do, you, do you think she would have gotten it? You know, would she yeah. have been in the three, you know, would she or the four that they awarded there? Um, 
I, I have my doubts. Um, obviously, yeah. I, I wasn't alive. I wasn't alive at the time, but I've read the books, um, and I feel like a lot of the political process marginalizes contributors. Um, it, it does sort of promote this "who gets credit" idea, which is really the opposite of what we look for in science. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, you really want to promote the collaboration process more than, you know, the first name on the paper. All right. All right, so my pick of the week is also about the Nobel Prize, but it's more important. It's about yeast. Um, so, so, uh, so for the Nobel Prize, the 2016 Nobel Prize in uh, Physiology and Medicine, um, it really was, uh, it's about uh, the discovery and the groundbreaking work about autophagy in yeast. And so, yes, there was a scientist who was involved, and yes, it was very important, and yes, it had all these applications, but to me, the, the, the take-home for this and the, the lesson I'm going to use for my students is like, Look at this model organism, this model organism that we use in our little yeast spheres, you know, that we use mm-hmm. to model respiration, to that we use to model cell division, that we use to, like, we use yeast all the time as this model organism. And look at how basic research was done out of curiosity. You know, he did not go out to study autophagy and yeast for any practical end. This was scientist who had a question and a curiosity about what was going on and he followed down a path of curiosity mm-hmm. and basic research and um, I think that there's a an over, a, what I keep hearing from people who do grant work um, I read Lab Girl this summer um, oh yeah and, I'm halfway through it yeah and and I think one of the themes you know that it, that uh, that she brings up during it is, um, you know, she talks about sort of the practical implications of science and how important that is for grant work. And I've heard that from other people who do grant work. And I, and I think that focusing too heavily on, you know, the practical implication kind of misses the point. Um, we'll, we'll sort out practical imp- implications once we learn what's going on. But if we don't really know what's right. going on, we have to just allow for that massive curiosity to drive people and then mm-hmm. once we've made discoveries, then that's when we bring the engineers in. The engineers can build things. Like scientists, <laughs> biologists ask questions we and do research. Stuff. Yeah, we discover stuff <laughs> yeah. and we let the engineers do the building. Um, but exactly. discovery leads to discovery leads to discovery. And then, yes, there's biomedical engineers and other people who will put things together. But awarding science based off of focusing on, like, what is the discovery going to lead to down the road, um, I feel is very short-sighted. So from my standpoint, in spite of the flaws of the Nobel Prize, I, I do love when a Nobel Prize is, is done that shows the importance of doing basic research, not goal-oriented research. And also our little yeast friends get, you know, should, should get a plug because, you know, our model organisms are how we learn everything. And so that's a, a, yeah, exactly. a, a wonderful lesson. And I will certainly be discussing yeast this week when we're, my kids are designing their follow-up lab. Yeah, I'll have to save that article for when I use my yeast uh, a few weeks from now. Yeah, when you do your respiration. Yeah. Yep. So, All right. Well, uh, thank you again for joining me, Robin. Uh, this was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you really again enjoy, for having me. Really enjoy it. All right, so I'm going to read my, my credits here. Uh, Life of the School, uh, you can get all the show notes and all the information from lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, you can also uh, send me feedback on the website, lifeoftheschool.org. There's a little feedback form there. Or you can reach me on Twitter at Life of the School or at Mr. Matthew Tweets. Or you can contact Robin. I pulled down your, your, your I'll put your uh, Twitter handle uh, <laughs> right into the show notes as well if you have questions directly for Robin. 
music on the podcast is by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, or really any place that uh, you could subscribe to podcasts. And uh, this episode will be our early November episode. We put out two episodes a month. And thank you, and I will talk to you all soon. <laughs>